If you have your Bibles, turn to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. Sometimes we simply don't get it. We don't fully understand what's going on. It doesn't matter what we do. It seems that we miss the reason behind the things that are going on in our lives, do we not? Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the prophets coming to a better understanding of who God is, even though he seems to have been left abandoned. Today we're going to be looking at two things here in the third lament. Number one, the painful realization, verses 1 through 20. And number two, a hopeful delight, verses 21 through 38. Number one, the painful realization, verses 1 through 20. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. He has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He has been to me a bear lying in wait, like a lion in ambush. He has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. He has caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. I have become the ridicule of all my people, their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood. He has also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul far from, this, from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. The realization that happens to Jeremiah here is what tends to happen to many of us when we're going through trials, when we're going through suffering. When we take a step back and see the crazy going on and how God is dealing with our nation and even the rest of the world, eventually the reality hits home with us personally, does it not? Jeremiah starts off as one who has seen the darkness personally. Where God, if you will, turns off the light and leads him into the darkness. It's not just seeing the pain of others, it has now become personal to Jeremiah himself. Has that ever happened to you? I'm sure it has for all of us, right? We see people going through pain. We see what's going on in the nation. And then it finally hits home, does it not? The pandemic was just something the media warned you about. And then it hits you and your family. Some it left with a deep hurt to the point of losing a loved one or friend. The talks of recession never really bothered you much before, but now 
you're finally feeling the pressure, right? You've never seen prices so high. You're being more careful in how and where you spend your money. At least you should be, maybe not everybody. You can emphasize, to a certain extent, what others are going through, and you can, in a sense, sympathize with them. But when it finally hits you personally, it goes differently, doesn't it? It's no longer a theory or an understanding that you see logically. You're now personally experiencing what they're experiencing. You are actually going through the same thing. That's when it really hits home, does it not? You see, Jeremiah is personally in physical pain over the state of Jerusalem to the point of essentially describing bones that break and are aging faster due to the lack of nutrition and food. You need to remember that these people, including Jeremiah, are starving in Jerusalem. The inner pain is getting to him. In fact, listen to what it says in verse 7. God has walled him in, and he can't escape. What a descriptive statement. You feel trapped. There's no way out. Jeremiah is feeling trapped and can't get out, almost as if God is not hearing him. Jeremiah is essentially shrieking. That's the word for cry. And shouting out to God. But it feels like he's getting no response. You ever been there? And I'm not talking in front of family and friends or your children. You ever been at that point where you're just so overwhelmed, you want to scream? The pain is too great. Feels like nothing you say to God is even heard. You ever get to the point of screaming so much because you're in so much anguish and you think, is this even doing anything for me to cry out to God at this time? You see, I picture a mother losing her child in a war as he's shot right in front of her eyes when I think of something like this. The utter hurt in her eyes. Losing a child. The pain. The loud wail and anguish. God, he felt, essentially ambushed him like a lion or bear. Tearing him apart, leaving him devastated. That's the description that Jeremiah is painting here. He felt like God was aiming directly at him as if he was the target. You ever feel that way? That it seems like you're the target. Others don't seem to be the target. You're the target. You're the one it seems like God is going after. You ever been there? You ever find others are prospering and all of a sudden you seem to be struggling? And you're not just struggling, you're devastated. You're broken. 
You're hurting like no one else, you think. It is almost as if, and the picture painted here, is God is shooting an arrow just at you. He felt like God was aiming directly at him. He was the target. And others made a mockery of him as he suffered along with them. How's that for added pain? The very people you warned about that judgment was coming, you now were judged alongside them as a nation. Jeremiah didn't escape the consequences of the nation's rebellion as a whole. Church, you need to understand this, that just because you live a certain life before God doesn't mean that certain consequences that are national, you get to escape. Now, you could be better prepared as a believer, absolutely. But it doesn't mean that you get to escape the consequences that may be coming. This is a very important point. There are certainly things that were promised when it comes to God's protection and provision in Scripture. But it does not eliminate potential national judgment should God so choose. If there's a nuclear war, you're not going to be exempt. What America does as a whole in offense to God will not exempt Christians from suffering the consequences of national rebellion. The world will mock at those that follow Christ while we both go through judgment at the hand of God who we've despised as a nation. In fact, what happens many times historically is the world may actually blame Christians for what's going on. They'll blame Christians for the cause of that judgment to attempt to wash away their own guilty conscience. You ever seen people do that? They're going through something, and you're going through something similar, and it's almost as if while they're in misery, they need to make sure you wallow in it too. They need to make you feel just as terrible. Because somehow you deserve the pain that they're going through. Shame on us believers when we do that. That's despicable. None of us should ever revel in the pain of someone else. Particularly if God's dealing with them and trying to bring them back to repentance. We can rejoice when people no longer get to scoff at God when it comes to things that he's clearly stated. But we need to be careful when we personally interact with people that we're not being an instrument that God would not want. And unfortunately, as we've said before, sometimes we're an encouragement where we should be a discouragement of their lifestyle. And also the opposite's true. Sometimes we're a discouragement where there should be encouragement.
If you're a follower of Christ, you should never be ashamed to stand for the Scripture. And you should strive to live in accordance to what God's Word clearly states. It doesn't mean you always live as you should, but you take seriously the sin for which Christ paid for. And you repent personally before you call others to repent. You make sure you take out that sin in your life first. Personal repentance is important before there is corporate repentance. You see, the truth is, killing the unborn is murder whether the culture agrees with it or not. In fact, Scripture has much to say about this to Israel through the watchman Ezekiel, who's more than likely brought to Babylon during the Babylonian invasion while Jeremiah stayed behind. Listen to what is said in Ezekiel 16, where God describes how he saw Israel and what they did in offering his children as a sacrifice to Molech. Ezekiel 16, verses 20 and 21. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offered them up to them by causing them to pass through the fire? God is describing Israel as an unfaithful prostitute who ends up sacrificing her own children who are really his children. The children of Israel had offered and sacrificed to other gods, God's children, in a defiling act of worship. God argues that their unfaithfulness was fully de demonstrated in their willingness to sacrifice what was not theirs, His children. They were gods by covenant, and they had broken that covenant by offering their sons and daughters in worship to another deity. There's no wiggle room here. Truth is, we know what we're doing when it comes to abortion. We know exactly what we're doing. We're asking to participate in sexual encounters with people without the consequences that come with that, and many times eliminating the very choices we've already made and trying to avoid what was very clear to us as murder. Few are bold enough to admit the reality of what abortion really is. The taking of human life. We're okay with the creating of human life when we would like to choose. But the taking of human life, that's also what should be up to us. If the choice was about a woman's body, then it would be her limbs that were torn off and brains sucked out, not the baby's. That picture is never painted today in culture. We're literally offering our children to this God and idol as the children of Israel did to Moloch. And our idol many times is a very pathetic idol called convenience. 
Most abortions are out of convenience, not out of necessity, even when they argue that. Essentially, there's no case where it's necessary. The, tr the truth is, we as children of God should care so much for children that we love having our own. We love having children. We are thrilled at the thought of the blessing that we've been given. And at the end, we always remember that it's God that's given them to us. To raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. While we quote these verses, we might need to consider the backdrop to them. So many want to raise their children for the Lord without appreciating the fact that God gave them to them. You and I need to remember who gave them to us. We're stewards. Jeremiah had warned Israel about its unfaithfulness to God and now suffered the consequences alongside with them. In fact, Jeremiah would not be the guy to turn to for an example of living your best life now. Especially when you get to phrases like, He has filled me with bitterness. Jeremiah is so hurt that he even utters a statement that's so hard for us to fathom sometimes. His soul is far from peace. And he has forgotten prosperity. I've got nothing, God, that I enjoy in this life anymore. I don't feel peace. Prosperity? Are you kidding me? Forget that. It's been taken away. Not from those around me only, but me as well. Jeremiah would not be the guy to talk to about making sure you're living in blessing. When the whole nation is under a curse, because he's just in as much agony as the rest are. He has the sense that everything he has hoped for in his relationship with God is now gone. All he sees is affliction and memories of all this devastation unfolding before his eyes. And they're too much for him to bear. But something changes. Jeremiah remembers a truth that he has ignored. Number two, a hopeful delight, verses 21 through 38. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. 
Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men, to crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the justice due a man before the face of the Most High, or subvert a man in his cause. The Lord does not approve. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? You see, it's important to pause and recall certain truths that you and I know. Truths that we may have forgotten and we don't particularly feel those truths when we're going through suffering or agony. These truths are what give us hope, and we'll take some time to really consider and digest what's mentioned here by Jeremiah. Now, I know these verses are verses that you and I have seen posted on Facebook. They're wonderful, encouraging passages without fully understanding the context of really what Jeremiah was going through when he got to this point. And this reminder that he had. Many times the context is forgotten. Verses 23 through 24, Though through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in Him. So, when it all falls apart, what needs to be remembered? Well, the first thing that Jeremiah remembers is God's mercy, even in judgment. Do you remember God's mercy, even in judgment? Or do you feel that it's hopeless and there is no mercy as I'm going through chastening? He also remembers God's compassion. Concern and care to alleviate even in our struggle. God is not apathetic to the pain that we're going through. He's not. Even if that pain is self-inflicted, believer. God is not trying to just leave us to our own devices. He wants you to go back and rely on Him. And many times what He does is He lets us be left to our own devices so we realize how much we really depend on Him. But God is compassionate. He cares for His own. Even when judgment is on the way. Jeremiah also remembers God's renewal. It's new every morning. Every day is a new day. You ever have one of those horrible, no good, very bad days? I know I'm quoting a book, I'm sorry. Sorry, Alexander. And the next morning, we wake up. And it's almost as if we're refreshed. 
It is almost as if God reminds us once again, you're alive, I'm merciful to you today. I can't tell you the amount of times I've recalled sinning before God and wondering if I'm going to make it the next morning. Whether God would let me live another day for how I had failed Him that day. And I wake up the next morning and am blown away that God allowed me to wake up. Because His mercies are new every morning. Oh, there still may be consequences. But there's a refresh. Is there not many times? There's a, I got to deal with this. But God hasn't struck me dead yet. I'm still breathing. He's been merciful. Though I deserve judgment to the point of death. What else does Jeremiah remember? God's great faithfulness. Listen, it's important to be reminded that even in God's chastening, He's always faithful. He was before you were in judgment or chastening, and He is during and He will be after. God is faithful at all times. You and I are faithful sometimes. That's the difference. His faithfulness can always be banked on. He's always faithful even when we've turned away and walked away from Him. We're the ones that prostitute ourselves. He's faithful. He loves His own. God is what matters. That's why I love this phrase, the Lord is my portion. He's what we're supposed to be after. You ever heard the phrase, I'm running after God? What does that mean? What exactly does that mean? Because that's what Jeremiah understands here. The Lord is my portion. He's everything to me. I'm in pain. I'm starving. But it's God who's my portion. He's the one I'm after because I live for Him. When he means portion, he means that God is my inheritance. He's the one that it's worth it for. To go through suffering with my people. He's our reward. What we have replaced him with doesn't match up. Because he is what we're after if we have hope in him. He is the sure thing. Everything else is very shaky, believer. There's not a single person or thing you can bank on to be what he is. And that includes your spouse for those of us that are married. There's only one that's a sure, true, faithful, unshakable God. Verses 25 through 27. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. 
It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. God is good to those who patiently wait for Him by putting their trust in Him. Now that good is defined by Him, not you. You don't get to go, well, God, I don't think that's good. You don't get to have that argument. In fact, one of the most crucial elements of the book of Job is when God makes Job sit down and hear that he has nothing to say as to why God did what he did. And there's so many Christians that want to push back at God and why he's doing certain things in their life and why things have turned out the way they have. It's not fair. God is good. And those struggling passages that many of us quote, including Romans 8.28, for good. The good that God sees is not the good that we see. And unfortunately, what we think the good in other people's lives is may not be the good that we would readily admit may be what God is actually doing differently. It may be actually a curse rather than a blessing that we think it was good for somebody else. God saves those who put their trust in Him. Then there seems to be a very strange phrase that follows here. It says, good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. In fact, the idea here, it is good for us to submit to God's discipline at an early age. There's something to be said about learning the discipline of God earlier rather than later in life. How much heartache would you and I avoid if we had learned earlier on? How many painful things do we endure right now because we didn't learn earlier? And maybe even right now we're not learning. God's been continually showing us and we still refuse to listen. Or we hear Him, but do nothing with it. So how is this discipline learned? Well, I think the description is found right in the next verse. Let him sit alone and keep silent, because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him, and be full of reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though He causes grief, yet He will show compassion according to the multitude of His mercies. For He does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men to crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the earth to turn aside the justice due a man before the face of the Most High or subvert a man in his cause. The Lord does not approve. Who is He who speaks and it comes to pass? When the Lord has not commanded it, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? This is learned, believer. And it's strongly encouraged by what Jeremiah is saying here, that it's learned earlier on. 
Sometimes the best way to learn under the discipline of God is in silence as God teaches you. Don't be quick to... Zip it. You ever tell your kids to be quiet like that? I'm talking. On a more serious level, that's what God does with us. We have the audacity to want to scream back to our Father in heaven like we have some reason or right to say something to him when he's fully capable of understanding what we're going through. In fact, Jesus suffered as an example for us. And lest I forget to mention, he suffered more than you and I have to the point of death. Sometimes the best way to learn from God is to just be silent. Don't be quick to say something. To make sure that others know he's fully aware. Sometimes we need to say nothing when God is dealing with us. There should be a humility before God, hence the reference to the dust. We think we deserve much better than we get for our sinful choices, do we not? Well, God, I did the same thing that person did. It seems like their consequences are less than mine. You don't get to determine that. God is not putting us all in line and going, well, you know what? This person sinned this much with this sin. I'm only going to do this for them compared to that person, and I'm going to ask for their opinion. What do you think? Should I do more here or less? God's not asking any of us. God is sovereign. And he gets to choose what he wants to do. And as much as we think we get to throw our fists to heaven and demand what we want, many times the things that we demand we'll never get. One of the ways that we learn God's discipline is also to take the consequences of our sins as they come, fully deserved. Some of us have walked with God for some time. We really need to grow up in this area. We still throw tantrums every time God deals with us. We get all mad and throw our hissy fits. Whine. Worse than even our children do. Because God's dealing with us severely. And we're trying to tell our children to toughen up. Well, maybe we need to toughen up. And understand that there are certain consequences in our lives that God wants us to understand. They're a result of our actions. And that lesson we're going to have to learn. How many of us as parents, when our children have done wrong and they've repeatedly done what's wrong, we've upped the ante on the consequences? You ever done that? It's not the same consequence as it was the first time by the time we got to 100. You've done this so frequently, there's nothing you're going to do this week. You're going to bed at 7. You're not going to have games. You're not watching TV. We just add. And yet when we do all these things against God and we wonder, why is he dealing with us like this? We respond the way our own children do many times. Throwing a hissy fit. How dare you? 
We think others deserve what we're getting. Do we not do that? God, but, but they did this. Are we not like children? You ever have a sibling blame someone else? It's always the sibling's fault, it's not theirs, that they responded and punched them in the face. But they said this. Well, that didn't give you the right to give them a black eye. We blame those God uses in that discipline instead of taking responsibility that we had it coming. This is one of the things that I think is hardest in ministry. When you're preaching God's word and trying to warn people, what ends up happening sometimes is people get more angry at you than the fact that the consequences they have to deal with are reality. Anybody that's ever ministered in any capacity in the church, whether it's a youth pastor, a deacon, an associate pastor, senior pastor, someone in a discipleship relationship, when someone's going through something, sometimes the easier response for that person going through the agony and suffering is to get angry at the person calling out what's going on. Well, if you didn't do this, this wouldn't have happened. Thanks for your support. Why'd you tell me that now, like I needed to hear that again? And that's a response that many people have. They get angry at the messenger rather than dealing with reality. You want to know why our homes are so broken? It's because nobody wants to blame themselves. They blame the church. They blame the schools in their local community. They blame the nation as a whole. You know what they don't blame is themselves. It's always someone else's fault, is it not? If only those people did this right, then my kids would be better off. Well, they're your kids. Parents, let's wake up. Let's grow up. Let's take responsibility. The very thing we tell our kids they need to be doing. It's amazing how many of us have not grown out of these stages, even as full-grown adults. We blame those that God uses in discipline instead of taking responsibility that we had it coming. And we fully deserve the humiliation, insults, and strain our relationships due to our own sin. Don't get upset at the person that's actually trying to help you in seeing reality. What do you want? Everything to be flowery all the time? Oh, just, just trust God. It's fine that you just kept using your credit card. It's not going to really kill you long term. You're fine. Except for the fact that your anxiety just went through the roof last week. It'll be okay. Another thing that we do when we grow in our dis understanding discipline of God is when we realize that we deserve what we get. We deserve what we get. And usually we actually deserve much worse than we get. We come to the realization that not one of God's children is disciplined in order to be isolated permanently, but eventually to bring them back to fellowship. When you feel like God's pressing hard on you for sin in your life, and you're dealing with consequences, realize the whole point of that is to bring you back to Him. It's not so He can reject you. It's to say, come back. Come back to the Father. Come back to church. Be under the teaching of the God's Word. Pray. 
Repent. Be in fellowship with other believers. Stop trying to do it all on your own. You see how that works out. God brings grief into our lives, but is also compassion. Caring for us in our state to restore us. And by the way, that word compassion is repeated multiple times in this text. It's important. God cares for you where you are, even when you're going through very big struggles. The seeming rejection from God is a temporary one in order to bring us back to Him. Because typically, when it seems that God is far away, it's really us that's far away. When it seems that God is the one that is distant, it's been us. And we haven't been honest. What do you mean God doesn't want to hear me? Just built up these walls of sins in my life that God is not going to hear me on. Because I don't want to repent in any of them. I don't want to deal with any of them. And I'm wondering why the wall is so thick. As much as it makes it difficult for us to understand the truth, God is not enjoying bringing us pain to the point of sorrow. I want you to understand that, believer. God is not enjoying the pain that you go through. He does not enjoy his people's suffering. Those lessons are taught and retaught because we refer, you refuse to listen the first time. Just as your children and my children, when we're raising them, they have to be taught certain lessons over and over again, God is teaching us certain lessons over and over again. And sometimes, what it seems frustrating, if you will, to us, when it seems very frustrating for us, that God seems to be rejecting us, all he's trying to do is to teach us that you want to live the prodigal life? You want to do this on your own? Go ahead. See how that turns out. There's something much better in the Father's house. In fact, God welcomes us as the prodigal when we come back, does he not? He welcomes us with a feast because he wants to fellowship with us. Right in this text, we, have, we even see the reality that when someone does something against others that's unjust, God sees and he is well aware. Don't think for a moment that when an injustice is done on this earth that God's not aware of it. Don't think for a moment that it has escaped the eye of God. Don't think for a moment that what we've done as a country for these last 50 years has escaped the knowledge of God. In fact, one of the difficulties for us to kind of wrap our minds around is how God can chasten us and love us both at the same time and completely understanding how he's doing it. Because many lessons that God's taught us through chastening, have we not come out better for it at the end when we look back? 
Why is it that we so readily forget that when we go through chastening again, that God already taught us already on some things? It is almost as if we reset in our perspective of God rather than build on our perspective of God sometimes. It is almost as if we know God's been faithful. He absolutely was there after I was crushed by this overwhelming sorrow in my life. Things got better. My relationship was restored. And then it got difficult again. And we go back and wallow in self-pity rather than going back and going, wait a second, God is faithful. Look at what he taught me last time. Why do we have such a short memory of the goodness of God when we have such a long memory of the suffering we've gone through? The questions asked in verses 37 through 38 are answered with a resounding yes. Nothing can be done without God's permission. God sends both woe and well-being or blessing in our lives. None of it escapes God's sovereign hand. Whatever the circumstances in our lives, they are by decree of God And he is using those things in our lives to bring him glory and for our good. Even though we may not define it the way he does. So many say that they want to live a life that's pleasing to God. Unfortunately, we are many times deceived in thinking that we are. Which is where discipline comes in. If you're assuming that you're living faithfully for God, then why is the discipline necessary? Because you probably aren't. That's where self-deception comes in. So in conclusion, where are you misunderstanding? Where are you misunderstanding? Are you wondering why God's hand seems heavy, particularly on you lately? Why is it that I'm going through this, God? No one else seems to be going through this. Nobody else understands my struggle. They haven't gone through what I have. Jesus has. He was in all points tested, tempted, as we are, yet without sin. And I take that all meaning all human experiences that a person could possibly go through. Maybe you've been unaware of sin that God is trying to show you because you're too busy staring at everyone else's. Maybe this past week, instead of kind of owning things that you need to do as a family differently, you've been looking at other families and how they're doing things. Maybe you're not focusing on God working on sin in your life. You're looking at everybody else and looking at all the errors they need to work on. Time to do some actual introspective analysis. Maybe the reason your prayers don't seem to amount to much is because your affections are really somewhere else, not Him. You realize that God is compassionate and that He cares? You realize that Jesus Himself cared so much for Jerusalem which rejected His status as Messiah. He showed compassion to them. It may seem that darkness is all you know, 
but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. It's found in the pages of Scripture, which are meant to give you hope. If you're trying to find hope outside the Word of God, it's going to fail. You're going to continually be in a pit and spiral of depression and agony. You're not going to find any comfort, honestly. And if you do find comfort, it's temporary. It won't last. You need to be reminded of the truths you once believed, in fact, which is one of the reasons why when you read God's Word, and you see this throughout Scripture, when people finally open the law of God, or they call to remembrance things that God has said, their perspective changes. Oh, we know a lot of things, but it isn't until you read them again that sometimes God moves in a supernatural way that you didn't expect. You ever have that happen? You just kind of read the Bible that day just to do it, and a verse hits you out of nowhere. And God just absolutely breaks your heart over something. Or he encourages you with something that you've been struggling with. You go back and go, man, I'm so glad I read that. So glad I read that today. What a change of perspective. The reason why we misunderstand God so much is because we're not in his word. We're asking culture to tell us who God is apart from his word. Realign all the things you strive for in this life, believer, to pursue him. Realign all those things in your life that you're doing to pursue him. In working hard to make more money, do it with the intention to serve him more greatly. If you're having a problem and a struggle in raising children, remember that they're his. And you do your best to praise and live for him. You're serving others to please Him. Not so you feel better about yourself. Mind you, there are blessings and there are good feelings attached to doing what God has said. But that's not the reason you and I do them. Your kind deed for the day should go beyond just being nice. There's a God that needs to be worthy of worship that people need to see. In raising children, do so with the intention of making sure your children know that Jesus is what life is all about. The good things that He's blessed you in your home with, Jesus is the reason we have this. God Himself has blessed us. God has also comforted us, children, when we've gone through these struggles. He's the source. In building a relationship with others, let them know what God has done and is doing in your life. You want to know a way to really connect with people outside of your local church community? Share with them what God's done in your life. Share what God's dealing with you on currently. That includes the difficulties and struggles, by the way. and how he's even showing us our own sin. One of the ways we really can connect with other people that do not know Christ is when we as believers share with them our own struggle with sin. 
One of the unfortunate things that happens to many Christians is they put on a wonderful facade. They pretend they don't really struggle. They pretend their marriages are all intact. They pretend that raising kids is easy because Facebook shows them that. The struggle's real, isn't it? And sometimes people don't need our cookie-cutter Christianity that looks nice and arranged. It looks so perfect. I want to actually trust the sovereignty of God more as believers and know that God has placed people in our lives for a reason. Rather than trying so hard to work against that desire to please man, remember he's sovereign. People need to hear the truth of what God does and how he blesses and disciplines his children that he loves. When you are struggling as a believer and God is disciplining you, you should find the help from another faithful believer that God has shown the way out or through that struggle. You don't have to do it alone. And you also should be willing to share what God is doing in your life that may seem painful because God loves you as his own. It means that sometimes the very difficult portions of our life that we don't want to share with others, we should open the door to share. Not with everybody without distinction, but for people that God places in our lives that sometimes we should share that with. One of the areas that I know in my life whenever we talk with others is my struggles financially years ago. I want to talk about something that's pretty easily relatable today. I think a lot more people struggle now financially than they have years past. Use it as a witnessing tool. So much of God's church has eliminated discipline from the sanctification process. At least we've attempted to, let's put it that way. It's outright promised, church, that we will be disciplined. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Maybe you don't understand why knowing Christ is all that important. Maybe you're watching this online and you realize that you've been pursuing all the wrong things. And everything you seem to be pursuing is worthless. Know that Christ is superior to everything else. Jesus is the reason we ought to live for. His blood that was shed for us on the cross is worth living for. His resurrection from the dead, conquering death, gives us purpose beyond this life. He's superior to everything that you may be pursuing and worthy of laying down your life for. He died for sinners who deserve death so that we may have life through him. And that life that he provides, believer, is more abundant as well. 